Hello, my name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Wash, the internet's premier pro Lithgow podcast where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week we have moved back into the dramatic sphere, a more of a family drama uh, sort of week this week, as opposed to horror or other specific genre-based stuff. We, of course, have watched The Descendants, uh, but before we get into that, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. We all went to the cinemas this week to see the most recent Marvel film, isn't that right? We did. We went and saw The Marvels. It is a superhero movie directed by Nia DaCosta. It's based on the Marvel comics, and uh, in it, a cosmic snafu with the space transport system uh, causes Carol Danvers, played by Brie Larson, Monica Rambe- Rambeau, played by Tayana Har- Paris, and Kamala Khan, played by Iman Vellani, to switch places when their powers are used, and uh, like literally switch places in space and time. They will just be in one place and end up in the place the other person was. Uh, so they team up alongside Nick Fury, played by Samuel L. Jackson, to figure it out. And, uh, of course, this being a Captain Marvel movie, it is connected to the Kree. So why don't you guys say what you thought of this? Uh, yeah, I'll go first. I had a lot of good fun with the Marvels. Um, of course, I've seen the first Captain Marvel. I've seen Carol's subsequent appearances in the other films that she's been in. And of course, I've also seen Miss Marvel and uh, a, uh, WandaVision, uh, where Photon gets her powers. And I think this did a really good job of explaining these different characters to the audiences who haven't seen uh, those television shows, like Lawson, for example, who doesn't watch television. Um, And I think that a lot of the, the character and a lot of the joy of collaboration comes through in this. Brie Larson is allowed to actually emote properly this time around. She's able to play a character with levels and variety. Um, Imad Vellani as Kamala Khan is always a bright spot. She was fantastic in Ms. Marvel, and she's really, really great here. Um, villain was a, on the weaker side, but I do like how they're starting to discuss, like, the ramifications of characters like Captain Marvel being out there in space, and the fact that superhero action has consequences, uh, albeit unforeseen consequences. Uh, no, I had a really good time with this movie. It's nice, it's charming, it's weird. It gets weird. Uh, there was a whole... There were two segments that I did not anticipate, and both were musical in nature, very musical in nature. Uh... But no, I had a really good time with this. This was a really nice palate, palate cleanser after Secret Invasion, which really dulled a lot of my enthusiasm. Because while I liked the first couple of episodes of Secret Invasion, the back off really, really tested my patience. Um, it's maybe an argument for not doing your review on the podcast when you've only seen one episode. Yeah, most likely. Because anyone listening to that would have thought you really liked it. I did! Until the I rest didn't know of the show you, happened. Yeah, I didn't know that that was your opinion of the show until right this moment, so... Yeah. Um, but no, this was nice, good fun. It wasn't really trying to be the next big MCU movie, and in that, it feels like it was given leeway to just be itself, which was nice. Yeah, I quite enjoyed it. 
I enjoy Brie Larson as Captain Marvel, and she's allowed to be more herself in this film. And I like the way that she interacts with Teona Paris as Monica Rambeau and Iman Vellani as Kamala Khan, aka Ms. Marvel. The performances in this movie are all great. I think Zoe Ashton or Zoe Ashton was a sorry was a little bit wasted in this role, but I think she did good with what she was given. And you get a lot of fun stuff with Kamala's family dealing with Nick Fury and. Everything that's happening on Saber, which is the sort of space version of S.H.I.E.L.D. that he started. There what are you were a lot doing, of interesting Harley? set piece. What are you doing, Harley? <laughs> rustling and crackling are going on in the background. <laughs> Sorry, I had to dispose of some old batteries. That and I couldn't really have waited loud. until two hours from now when we finished recording the podcast? <laughs> well, it wouldn't have been an issue and it could have been edited out, but someone decided to bring it up. Yep, because by acknowledging it, I now don't have to go back and spend the time editing it out. <laughs> That's my theory. Holly, it was very distracting. Right? Sounds like you were opening a bag of chips or something. Anyway, as I was saying, there were a lot of funny set pieces, particularly one closer to the end of the movie, which uses a needle drop from a musical that we're all familiar with, which I know that Lawson got a good kick out of. And you see a little bit more about the universe and the way certain planets work. You hear about what happened with the Kree in the 30 years between Captain Marvel and the quote-unquote present day within the MCU. And really, you get a lot of stuff between our three leads, which is Captain Marvel, Monica Rambeau, who in the comics is known as Photon, and Ms. Marvel. And they all work very well together. This was an amiable film. It's relatively short in comparison to other Marvel films. It's only it's the about... shortest Marvel movie ever. And it helps the movie not overstay its welcome. And I had a good time with this. I think it's better than the first Captain Marvel, because it has a lot more of a fun energy to it. It's able to have a lot of character. Um... I really, really enjoyed this. It was, uh, I've got to say, not something that I was super looking forward to. I mean, it was sort of in the Ant-Man realm of um, MCU movies that, yeah, I'll go and see. I'm in, I'm in this deep. But um, it wasn't like, you know, Fantastic Four or Thunderbolts or something I'm really no. like holding out for. We weren't, um, we weren't counting down the days. But it's a ton of fun. It's incredibly creative and wacky. Like, wacky is the operative word, I yeah. think. Like, it has this sense of fun and playfulness that um, maybe a lot of the other MCU movies didn't, and that I wasn't really expecting from this. Uh, it's definitely busting at the seams a little bit. Um, I'm not going to argue that their most recent run, Guardians of the Galaxy notwithstanding, hasn't been the most has been I'm not going to argue that they've been the most finely crafted of stories. I think there's been you know some sloppiness at the edges here. Um but this does also feel like the first like there's like necessary TV stuff. I mean obviously mm. the uh the stuff that happened in WandaVision, the stuff that happened in Ms. Marvel, um it ties in very closely um to creating two of the three protagonists in this uh movie which perhaps might be why the movie is currently on track as of this morning to have the lowest box office opening of any Marvel movie in the MCU. Um, 
But uh, yeah, it might not be the greatest idea to stick with that going forward, like tying the TV stuff in so heavily. Because, but that seems like something they've already realised from all of the stuff that I've been reading on uh, Hollywood Reporter and things like that. Um, it has a ton of ideas, like the power switch thing. That's uh, so fun. Yeah. It gives like the the first time that that really starts happening, bang, 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 like. The way it's used in that sequence or the way it's used in action sequences is incredibly creative and incredibly yeah. uh, interesting to watch. I will say that the uh, the filmmakers seem not to know in that first sequence when the characters are all literally in different geographical locations, like all over the place. They're not in the same space switching. They're switching from hundreds of thousands of kilometers apart. Um, they don't seem to quite know how to edit that in a way that is... If you don't already know that that's the premise of the movie, I, I wonder whether you'd be able mm. to follow it quite as well. Um, but uh, it's tonally muddled, I think, in terms of narrative. The focus is very heavy on humour, and I think that comes at the expense of uh, some of the dramatic beats that they try for. I think it fumbles the uh, relationship drama and the alleged trauma that a lot of these characters are supposed to be going through. That said... The focus on funny is successful in that the movie is very funny. I was laughing a lot. It's weird. It's weirder than <laughs> it's a lot so of weird. like it's it's almost to Guardians of the Galaxy level in weirdness. Mm. Um, like and- I I turned to you when we were watching the movie and th- I said, "quote This is what I meant by the MCU needs to go weird." Yeah, but like it's self-effacing as well in an interesting way. Um. I agree with you all, you both, though, that the villain is a, is a nothing character. Uh, it's almost, it almost feels like it's, like, that and the whole, like, backstory of telling us what happened with Ms. Marvel when she went to confront the Great Intelligence, um, the Supreme Intelligence, or whatever it's called, uh, after the first movie. It almost seems like it's something that they're doing out of duty to the hanging threads of the original, mm. and not because they're actually interested in it. Um but, uh, the Kree some... just don't have very good luck post-Ronin. <laughs> but there's exceptional chemistry among the leads of the film. Larson and Villani are particularly brilliant uh, as uh, Captain Marvel and Ms. Marvel, respectively. And Samuel L. Jackson is a scene stealer. He's having so mm. much fun, even though he is like weirdly chill for Nick Fury. Like it's He's it's relaxed. Such an... It's such an about face from every other time I've seen Nick Fury. And considering what I I know through cultural osmosis happened in uh, Secret Wars, it's Secret doubly invasion, weird. Yeah. I know uh, Secret Invasion, right? Yeah, I know that um, the Marvels was apparently originally supposed to come out before Secret Invasion, which might mm. account for some of that. Um, but uh, the final scenes. Uh, both the final scenes of the movie proper and the post-credit scene set up some stuff. Like I'm just so stoked for both mm. of the movies that they are clearly setting up there. Um, it's been a long time coming for both of them, and I am really looking forward to it. I hope that uh, that I would say the post-credit one it won't be changed based on reaction to this movie. I hope that the one that come the setup that comes before the credits that they don't waver from that. Um, given what's given the low open for this film i say low open i mean it's it's projected to open about what uh kills of the flower moon earned in three weeks it's going to do in its opening <laughs> yeah. weekend but so, yeah so it's it's like 
it's in comparison a... to yeah, yeah. other Marvel films. Yeah. It's still a Marvel film. It's still going to make its money back. Well, not necessarily. Ant-Man Quantumania didn't. Um, but uh, the it is a moving of goalposts. Everyone's falling over themselves. Oh, isn't it great that Killers of the Flower Moon is doing so well for this kind of movie? And it's like, actually, no, it hasn't. It's not going to even make its its production budget back, let alone its marketing and distribution budget. But mm. that's the goalpost move because everyone's got their knives out for superhero movies at the moment. Um, anyways, at home... Oh, oh, just on this count about superhero movies, we also found out some news over the weekend. Uh, Deadpool 3 is going to be the only MCU movie next year. Yep. So it seems. Probably a good idea. Probably yeah. a good idea to, you know, let the heart grow fonder through absence. Um, and also I think that you know, it's maybe a good idea, especially with everything happening with Jonathan Majors to uh, pa- and and all of the underperforming stuff with Ant Man and uh, and this to take some beats and maybe figure out a way to consolidate some of. Because I think I think what's happened if they've they've gone too big, they've they finally yeah. found the point that audiences, mainstream audiences, are unwilling to go with them, and it is the massively multimedia franchise watch the four tv shows a year and the four movies a year and like they've it's got, a lot to keep it's on a top lot. of and uh i think that they'd be better off personally like focusing down a little bit just going back to maybe just keep it at three movies a year and then keep the disney plus stuff separate in the same way that the netflix marvel stuff was separate yeah like they can absolutely coast mm. at this point They've built up such a good energy that they don't need to keep fighting for the attention anymore. Plus, also, I didn't mention that at the top, SAG strikes over, yeah. which is great. Yeah, so... Good news. That is ostensibly why there's only Deadpool <laughs> next year. Yeah. Um, But it might turn out to be a blessing in disguise for them in the long run if they can make some hard choices. I mean, especially with that Jonathan Major stuff. I mean, mm. it can't be that that hard to justify why... Kang the Conqueror of all people looks different than the last time we saw him. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, that's something they need to come to terms with, and they'll have the time to do it. Anyways, at home I watched Jay Edgar. It is a biopic directed by Clint Eastwood, and it follows the life and times of Jay Edgar Hoover, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, the uh, legendarily paranoid and power obsessed inaugural director of the FBI, uh, and it is a movie that takes as fact the speculation about him supposedly being gay and basically uses that as a Rosetta Stone to understand why he does everything he does. Uh, this is a incredibly lazy and rote biopic that gets by solely on how interesting its subject matter is. Right away, I lay the problem, not entirely, but mostly at the fe- at the feet of Clint Eastwood. He is not the guy to tell this story. He is ill-suited both in terms of narrative tone and in terms of filmmaking style. Um, He just has, he's just an austere director who is rarely prone to make any interesting choices visually or filmically. Uh, Everything here looks washed out and colourless. He's very dry. Yeah. And I mean, he's infamous for not paying, like just shooting the script and not bothering with much else. Like, one take, two take, you're done. And he will refuse actors, you know, asks to go back for another take. He will sometimes just shoot the rehearsal and decide it's good enough. There is allegedly a scene in this movie where 
they shot the rehearsal and he was like, yeah, fine, and then had to actually cut out the bottom of frame so that you couldn't see the script that Army Hammer was holding and reading his dialogue from. Jesus. So, um, yeah. Come maybe on, not. Maybe, yeah, he's just a thoroughly uninspiring uh, filmmaker in, in my talk, own Talk experience. about actors who just waltzed into directing without a passion for the act. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but it's not just his fault. It's also uh, the fault of Dustin Lance Black, who, as a screenwriter, is uh, best known, frankly, for uh, rote and uh, uninspired bi- biopics. He did Milk, which was successful on the back of a strong Sean Penn performance and strong direction um, that seeded it in a good, in good sense of time and place. But it was similarly like... I mean... It's just the Cliff Notes version of these people's lives. That's all that he, these screenplays end up being. And it ends up being quite bland in that respect. Bloodless. Um, but the dialogue here ranges from decent to truly awful. Some of it is so cliche and cheesy as well. There are there are like genuinely ridiculous scenes here where it's impossible to take it seriously. Like the scene where... J. Edgar Hoover is listening to a secret tape that he made of uh, John F. Kennedy having an affair with some woman and all these sex sounds on the tapes. And then he gets a phone call with the tape playing in the background to tell him that JFK has been shot and killed in Dallas. And he puts the receiver down and you're just still hearing in the background like JFK going, "Mm, oh, oh, yeah. (laughs) Like, it's it's so amazing. so dumb. That and seems like a parody, honestly. It does, but it's dead serious. Uh, <laughs> and you can't take it seriously. Um, <laughs> I'm just imagining that. Just hearing JFK having sex in the background. <laughs> oh, no, the best part is... Just like Imagine his... being the person on the other end. It's, yeah, I know. Like... <laughs> Because his secretary, you don't see it from that person's perspective, but the his secretary like um, takes it through, but he's listening on the call. So you cut out to her sitting in the office, listening in on the call, and you can hear the tape going in the background. <laughs> like it's so so dumb. Um, that that sounds like something out of like a really dark comedy. Yeah. Uh, the, the rise of the FBI stuff is pretty interesting. Um, that's the most interesting stuff in the movie, frankly, is how the FBI came to be the intelligence behemoth that it is today. I mean, Hoover became this powerful, basically baron of Washington, this kingmaker. He had files on everybody, and it was sort of this mutually assured destruction thing where you couldn't come at him. You had to just let him run his own little fiefdom because he had files on everybody. And uh, it, it feels like there's a Oliver Stone version of this movie on the cutting room floor somewhere because it seems so close at several different moments to sidling up to suggesting that JF uh, that J. Edgar Hoover is behind some stuff like, uh, let's say, the Martin Luther King assassination and the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby. <laughs> like, it's very, very, like, it comes so close to suggesting, like, dodgy dealings. And I don't know how much it intends to suggest or whether it just intends to suggest that he used these instances of history to his advantage or what, but um, 
there's some moments that feel really loaded and I don't know how intentional that is. Uh, it, it has this framing device of old J. Edgar Hoover dictating his memoirs to an agent juxtaposed with young J. Edgar Hoover. Um, and there is a particular focus on the Lindbergh case because that was the first time that uh, the FBI really became part of the public lexicon that they were hearing about it on the news was when they came in to try and help track down the people who kidnapped and killed the uh, the son of Charles Lindbergh, who was basically a massively famous socialite at the time. Um, it wanders into a minefield, though, with the whole J. Edgar Hoover was secretly gay thread, which is a thing that a lot of historians believe. There is apparently ample uh, circumstantial evidence for it, but it's not settled history in the way that this movie sets it out to be. But more importantly, the problem here is that it both the script and Eastwood as filmmaker seem to ascribe huge character defects to his homosexuality. Mm. Like mm. that like I said, that it's treated as the Rosetta Stone, that it's treated as the uh the compulsion that's just that's driving all of his action. And that's really difficult to uh, you know, go along with when it's this guy who's pretty awful and you wonder about dustin lance black because he's an openly gay man his his previous film had been um harvey milk who was uh, you know a much more uh likable um and much more definitely gay historical figure um and you're sort of like well why he may J. Edgar hoover may well have been gay but why would you want to claim him and why would you uh write this script that seems to draw connections between so much of his worse instincts and his homosexuality like that just yeah seems like it, a it's weird... like it's it's like going to a pride parade and saying and claiming roy Cohn. it's like well that's the... different even like roy Cohn is like at least we know for a fact yeah 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 but at the same time it's like why would you want to claim them as yeah an icon of your community well it's not just that it's a, it like the most troubling part is that it's it does really seem to uh, almost use his sexuality as a diagnosis for his behavior. Yeah, yeah. and that's, that's that's the issue. Iffy. That comes off very strange coming from the writer. Yeah, um, but it it does explore this relationship um, that he is alleged to have had with his right hand man Clyde Tolson, played by Army Hammer. Um, they were very close in real life. Uh, Eastwood, to his credit, is trying to be right-headed about it. I don't think that there's any, you know, conservative moralizing in the way that he's approaching things. Uh, but uh, he doesn't have the perspective necessary to uh. handle this kind of story. And the script isn't helping him either. DiCaprio is making choices, let's say that. I mean, there is... <laughs> There is the bones of a good performance here, but it's smothered in affect and some of the worst old age makeup I have ever seen uh. in a movie. Like, it is astonishingly bad. Um, well, I'm not surprised with a director as disinterested as Eastwood that he wasn't willing to sort of tease out the rest of the performance. Yeah, I mean, like, the... the uh, Like... Army Hammer appears throughout just as often as Leonardo DiCaprio is because they were alive both for the same periods yeah. of time. Um, and uh, the makeup that Army Hammer is wearing particularly is 
uh, like um, the Gary Oldman character in Hannibal, like Mason Berger. Uh, Jesus. <laughs> like, it's... Pigman. Yeah, it's Christ. awful. Like, let me send you a, a picture. It has both DiCaprio and uh, and Hammer in it. Um, it's rough <laughs> stuff. Uh, that is... And it's so much worse when you see it in motion in a scene because it keeps them from emoting. You know, they just look mm. like they look like they've had their faces anesthetized. They look um, like they're about to rob a bank. <laughs> like that they're wearing masks of their own faces. It's the dead president gang. Yeah. Uh anyways, next I saw Hugo. It is a historical coming of age movie directed by Martin Scorsese. It's based on the novel The Invention of Hugo Cabret by Brian Selznick, uh, and it is set in 1931 Paris, where an orphan named Hugo, played by Asa Butterfield, lives in the walls of the Gare Montparnasse train station. He tries to keep away from the station inspector, Gustave, played by Sasha Baron Cohen, who's got like this weird obsession with sending orphans to the orphanage, uh, mm-hmm. and he is fixing an automaton the last connection that he has to his father, this little, like, golden machine man. Uh, And he's, to do that, stealing parts from a toy maker named George, played by Ben Kingsley. Uh, And he, uh, he, along the way, becomes friends with George's goddaughter, Isabel, played by Chloe Grace Moretz. And together they uncover a connection between George and the automaton. Uh, This is a really odd duck for Scorsese. Um, in terms of his filmography, it's the odd one out. It's well-made and capable, but uh, Scorsese's sensibilities don't mesh easily with a kid's movie, which is what this it's, is. It's a Spielberg premise. Yeah. Uh, it, he, what he's ended up making is a kid's movie for adults. Um, and, <laughs> like, that's that's the thing. Like, I, I can so easily imagine putting an eight-year-old down in front of this and them being completely disinterested after... 10 to 20 minutes like it's just it has a an elegiac sense of pace sense of tone you know there is an elegance to it which is very scorsese but is not i don't think conducive to the subject matter um it's a little long and languid uh it's a charming scorsese film yeah it's a it's a charming story it's it's got a slight dose of unreality um that uh, gives it a sense of wonder and a sense of awe. I mean, visually, it's quite quite wonderful in the way that he has captured both this version of Paris in 1931, but also uh, these somewhat more fantastical images that the, the movie occasionally delves into. Um, I enjoyed the station operations most, where you see all of these people that run little shops in the station or pass through the station every day. I mean... They're all these little side stories, and those are nice and sweet, and these little vignettes that uh, I, I found worked very well. The main plot is very much about film and the power of film, story as well, just as a general concept. Uh, the power of it as therapy, or, or at the very least, um, emotional support, and I, and I like that. I can see why it appealed to Scorsese. It appeals to me. Um, Feels the, like um, something I'd be into. Yeah, the, the emotion of the finale rings a little false, though. It's very neat. It's slightly unearned. Uh, but they have a great cast. Uh, Butter, Butterfield and Moret steal the show. Um, and when you've got people like Ben Kingsley and even Christopher Lee knocking around, uh, that's 
that's an achievement. Um, and only someone as practiced and experienced as Martin Scorsese could control Sasha Baron Cohen this well. Uh, mm. He he is he is Sasha Baron Cohen. You don't hire Sasha Baron Cohen unless you want to see him do his thing. But he is restrained in such a way that uh, you know makes him. I think far more effective than when he's going balls to the wall out there in so many stuff. Like it works in stuff like Borat and Grimsby, where that's sort of the point is to confront actual real people who don't know they're in a movie with this outrageous character. But all of the stuff that he went on to do, like the Nadir, the Korean Nadir that was Grimsby, for instance, um, that's the stuff where it's like, you know, maybe, I mean, he, he's a constant, he's, He's a smarter comedian than Adam Sandler, I think, but I think he's also at constant uh, risk of falling into the same potholes. You know what I mean? Mm. But he, it threads the needle well here. The production design, as I said, is excellent. Score says he's always good at this sort of big filmic spectacle, and this movie has a lot of that. There is uh, an intentional slight staginess to some of the environments, which works well. It has that kind of like old-school 80s, 90s, uh, you know, adventure, children's film, 70s even. Um, actually, very much like like the original Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory movie. You almost wonder whether a lot of the stuff that Scorsese's taking inspiration of is the stuff that he watched with his own children. Um, but uh, some of the CGI shots don't hold up. And uh, especially now that they're out of 3D, because that was this came out in the big 3D craze and Scorsese was interested, wanted to try it out. Um, I think that some of the digital only, I, I really don't like those digital only shots where it will like zoom through machinery or something and do these weird like swings in ways that no camera could ever move. Like I just, just feels tacky to me. And I think it's beneath Scorsese and he does it a few times here. Um, but, uh, and maybe it's just because I was a history buff, but I was sort of sitting there this whole time watching the movie going, oh, so all of these characters are happy now that they've gotten their happy ending, but the Nazis are going to invade in about a decade, and mm. uh, Hugo's going to be just old enough to serve. Good luck to him. Um, <laughs> and so, like, like, legitimately, that was something I was thinking about the whole time, was, like, that all of these people, it doesn't matter that they've got their happy ending, there is this horrific thing that's waiting so close down the line. Um, and it, it was actually distracting me, but that might just be because I'm strange. I wonder if Hugo's going to use his war machines to fight the Nazis. <laughs> uh, it's available for streaming in Australia on Stan and something called Filmbox Plus. That's new. Mm -hmm. uh, I next saw The Adventures of Tintin. It is an animated family adventure film directed by Steven Spielberg. It's based on the comic series by Hergé. Uh, and it is set in the first half of the 20th century, following a young journalist named Tintin, played by Jamie Bell. He is 13 or 30, no one really knows. Uh, and he stumbles on a criminal scheme by the dastardly saccharine, played by Daniel Craig. He's stealing clues to find a secret lost treasure, and Tintin pursues him and also along the way teams up with alcoholic boat captain Haddock, played by Andy Circus. Uh, this is cute, but it's a little weightless. I saw it in the cinema, and uh, I did want to double-check it just to see what I thought of it, uh, especially the, the technological advancements that it made. But um, it 
does still feel a little bit without substance. Not without substance. That's maybe too harsh a criticism, but not not as not not hitting as much as it should, given both its pedigree, but also how on paper all of the parts seem like they should fit really well. Yeah. Um, it, it it's motion capture animation. It's all done on a on a soundstage with Andy Serkis and Jamie Bell and Daniel Craig in motion capture suits. And in that sense, it's really interesting because it's held up. It's held up very well. And even like the animation, the movement of these characters still looks pretty spectacular. Um, the the one thing that hasn't aged very well is the dog fur on uh, Tintin's little dog that follows him around. And uh, I think that's just got more to do with just how much of it there would have been to yeah. animate. It just it, it's, it's a rendering issue. Yeah, it sometimes just seems like a a texture on a flat surface rather than yeah. actual fur. Uh, yeah, you see that a lot in a, in a lot of video games. Yeah, because it takes a lot to process individual hairs or even clumps thereof. There's uh, a bit of uncanny valley to it as well. I mean, because they've They've captured the look and dimensions of the characters from their original comics interpretations, which are very stylized. Mm. And, but to see them in action like that, and to see them done with such a such a sort of crystalline, almost photoreal approach, it's just invariably going to be a, a little bit strange it's at times. Uh, yeah, I- the the bit that stood out the most was that their heads seemed just a little too big for their bodies. Yeah. Um. When I was younger, I used to read every sort of comic strip I could get my hands on. So a lot of Garfield, um, Tintin invariably showed up, uh, read a bunch of that. Um, so when I saw the trailer, when that movie was coming out, I was like, oh, that feels wrong. Mm. They should have just done this hand-drawn animated style that would have made this feel less off-putting. <laughs> I did read Tintin as well. I was more of an, an Asterix and Obelisk guy myself. Likewise, Same. likewise. Same. I never got into Tintin. It it never was my vibe. It it's same for Phantom. Like mm. it. We heard a specific, bit, but... like a person going around looking for you know the sort of yeah. It's just a vibe that I never really got into. I when it comes to people going on adventures to places, fighting against people to go find hidden treasure, I'm more the mummy or Indiana Jones or even Uncharted, that kind of vibe. Yeah. Um, the designs are, are quite bright and colourful. It's a very attractive movie. Uh, they've definitely captured the uh, the tone and the style of the comics. But the story, though, it is what it is. It's Indiana Jones with training wheels, which is fine. I mean, yeah. this is that's, that's one that's of the reasons. Tintin. Yeah, that's Tintin. That's what how Spielberg learned about Tintin was when Raiders of the Lost art came out he read a french review that was constantly talking about how you know it's like the best tintin adaptation there's ever been um and he was like what the hell is tintin and he looked into it and they keep talking about tintin um but one wonders if spielberg was the right choice for this movie for that reason whether he is so rooted in this iconic version of what this kind of adventure story is it might have made more sense to give it to a different filmmaker who doesn't have so much baggage attached and uh, could approach things from a new perspective, a new, a new angle. Um, and uh, even though it says Adventures of Tintin on the title, 
It's actually Haddock's movie. Tintin and Saccharin don't get much dimension at all. Um, there are a couple of weird elements as well, some stuff that has aged oddly. They hammer the uh, the funny alcoholic trope a lot for a kid's movie, as far as Haddock is concerned. But, but there's also this like completely pointless um, pickpocket subplot that runs through uh, that could be cut out with such ease. But it's a strong cast, especially Bell, Circus, and Craig. You also got Nick Frost and uh, Simon Pegg, Toby Jones. They're bouncing around, uh, and the action is is pretty, although it's not very interesting. the The best part is a is a fairly spectacular oneer that comes in a chase sequence, uh, and that's sort of a thing where, like, I will I will give it that sort of oneer. Um, you know, it's it's such obviously a shot that could only be done in animation, but because mm. it's done in animation, I'll give it a pass way more than if it was done as Scorsese did it in Hugo. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um. But yeah, if if you'd like to stream it in Australia, you can find it on Stan. Lastly, this week I saw the Darkest Hour, not that one, uh, not the uh, Darkest Hour starring Gary Oldman as Winston Churchill, but rather the Darkest Hour about an alien invasion in Russia directed by Chris Gorak. Uh, It follows four tourists in Russia. Sean, played by Emile Hirsch. Natalie, played by Olivia Thirlby. Ben, played by Max Mangella. And Anne, played by Rachel Taylor. And they are stuck in the city after invisible aliens invade. Because these invisible aliens are electrical beings, and so they would like our electricity. But they also vaporize anyone they come into contact with which is difficult considering that they're invisible. Although they do, when they land, create this like EMP pulse, which wipes out all of the electronics. However, when they themselves go near an electronic thing, whether it be a light bulb or a car, it lights up, it activates in their presence. So you can kind of see them coming. Yeah, so they knock out the electricity. Well, they don't knock out the electricity. Well, They knock out the devices so they can feed from it. Yeah, that's that's clever. Um, this is a well, it's about the only thing clever that there is. It's it's a dopey War of the Worlds knockoff. Um, it it has some sense of scale. It's better than say Skyline. There was a flurry of these sort of low budget. I'll go ahead and say low effort alien invasion movies in 2011. There was Battle LA, Skyline, and this. Um, but uh, it has only sketches, not actual characters. There's a decent cast, and that's all that keeps it above water. They're trying their hardest, bless them. But the supporting characters are even worse off. They enter and exit without much happening to them emotionally or or uh, arc-wise in between. The effects work also is too much for the budget that they have. But there are some decent ideas, and they do get some decent use of these empty streets they've managed to secure because they were able to film in Moscow. This is, of course, before Russia started doing what it's doing now. Um, and it's actually pretty interesting to see the city on screen because you so rarely see that city on screen in Western media. Like, And so there's landmarks you've never seen before and, and things like that. Um, the, the alien design is hokey. But the the invisible light, but the invisible element with the lighting everything up element that keeps things a little bit fresher than it would otherwise be. It has potential, um, but it ends in this sort of highly optimistic 
sequel tease that is worth an eye roll. I mean, this was never going to go anywhere. They should have known that. And they really it, movies really started to do that in the 2010s, didn't they? They did, but I also wonder watching this whether there, it was more just like they didn't have the budget for an actual proper like alien mm. invasion level finale. So they went with a, uh, you know, let's retreat to fight another day style ending instead. Mm. Um, but if you would like to watch this, you can find it available for streaming in Australia on Disney Plus and Tubi. So the things we've watched, well, the thing we've watched this week is a new horror film that I was quite interested in seeing because the trailer looked very intriguing to me. Heard a lot of good buzz about it too. And I heard buzz about it as well. It's called No One Will Save You. Bryn, played by Caitlin Deaver, is a young woman exiled from her community, her community rather, and has built up a routine for herself. She lives alone, creates small model houses, and spends her days in reflection over the circumstances that brought her to this lonely life. Already a bundle of raw nerves and anxieties, her solitude is interrupted in the worst possible way, when she finds that an alien has broken into her home. Can she break out of her shell and save the- sorry. Can she break out of her shell and save the community that has shunned her, or will she fall victim to the scariest grey aliens- Six- ah, sorry. Or will she fall victim to the scariest grey aliens since the McPherson tapes? I would- do you want to say your piece about this first? Yeah, I'll say it first. I had a pretty good time with this one. Uh, the film is very, very interesting. It doesn't take a long time to start up. It is not interested in the slow burn, which I really, really appreciate. Uh, because when the grey aliens do show up, they show up. Um, the design is very, very interesting, although I do kind of miss when the grey aliens were just little guys with big fat eyes wearing, like, skivvies and pants. Um, just walking around, poking stuff, uh, like in the McPherson tape. These grey aliens are kind of hybrid and varying in nature, which always keeps it fresh whenever a new alien shows up. Uh, but I do miss the regular greys a good bit. Uh, the effects on the aliens themselves are really strong, and the visual look of this movie is fantastic. It looks great. Because it has to, because there's only about four lines of dialogue in the entire thing. Um, which is a very, very interesting exercise, and I think the movie pulls it off for the most part, but it takes a long time to figure out what's going on uh, with Bryn and her history. I think that's on purpose, but I would have liked to cotton on a little bit sooner. And of course, it does leave us with a little bit of ambiguity by the end, uh, which is interesting enough, but really... The most interesting parts here is when Bryn fights the aliens, and that is very, very fun to me. I think it's a very interesting time. It was tense at points. Um, it, it always kept me guessing. The, the movie's not interested in explaining a lot, which I think works in its favor, but does keep you at a bit of a remove. Um, Diva is fantastic. Uh, she is able to deliver without much dialogue. There were, like, four lines of dialogue in the entire movie, and she only gets one of those four lines. And No, she's... all of the dialogue is done by her. Oh, really? Yeah. I must have missed some of the ones near the beginning. No, uh, it, it takes until, I think, the 50th or so minute for her to say any lines of dialogue, and right. she's the only one who speaks. Oh, either way, because there's this interesting thing that happens with the aliens when they possess people. 
because they use little bugs that like crawl into the throat and create this chirping noise instead of speech. So you hear the chirping a lot. Um, no, it's it's very very interesting. Lots of great stunt work, and I love that the aliens are clumsy too. They're not exactly built for human spaces. And so they make mistakes. They stumble and they trip on stuff. An alien falls off the roof, for God's sake. This is the only quote on IMDb. Alien. Click, click, click. Blah. Click, click. Blah. Click, blah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, pretty much. That sums them up. Uh, very erudite, I- these aliens. Um, But yeah, I had a pretty good time with this one. Uh, it was a little colder coming out of it than I would have liked to be, but really, really good exercise. Great visual filmmaking. I would have liked more dialogue, but I understand what they were going for. It's like a successful Skinnamarink, if if you will. It's a Skinnamarink that didn't give me a headache. You know, no. you are you guys and your hatred of Skinnamarink is like as opposed not, to like the it's weird not a on hatred. It is. Let's be honest here. It, it was just as, dull. as opposed as opposed like your hatred of Skinnamarink juxtaposed with like the weird online cult surrounding Skinnamarink is the only reason that I'm going to watch Skinnamarink because I watched those trailers and it did nothing for me. But <laughs> your reaction, <laughs> I gotta, I gotta see what what it is. I gotta check it out. It's an experience, but it is. I warn you, quite dull. Um. But this particular movie, uh, No One Can Save You, is a lot more interesting because it's doing a lot more. Skin of My Rink was more interesting on concept than anything, but the execution didn't do anything. This is both interesting on concept and execution. Uh, it's, it's not the scariest thing I've seen all year, and it's not the most thought-provoking thing I've seen all year, but... It is one it, of the things you've seen this year. Yeah. But it's also among the most brutal things I've seen this year, uh, with what happens to some of these poor aliens. <laughs> I really enjoyed this for what it was. I was I'm always intrigued to see a movie that does grey aliens as scary again. Hmm. We still haven't watched Fire in the Sky, which is a movie I want to get to watching because I have a feeling that those are grey aliens there. But I like the idea of taking these old almost trite designs, almost childish designs of creatures that have been parodied and used in kids' media, like the Dracula with the large cape and the Avadazakia blood kind of thing. I like taking those aesthetics and making them scary again, which is what this movie does. It is solid horror filmmaking when the alien is moving through Bryn's home and is touching things and is essentially just investigating what the hell these objects are and the threat comes from this great alien and you not knowing what its intentions are and the film is held together by great acting from diva who has to hold all of the film together with only five lines of dialogue and basically the rest of the film is just you watching what she's experiencing and she does such a good job at and she does such a good job at pulling the film together. I really enjoy the designs of the aliens here. We've got a few flavors of little gray bastards here. We've got you just normal, kind of tall, kind of smart-looking aliens walking around. We got nasty little fellas and we got these 
aliens with these giant elongated limbs that almost look like spiders. And you actually get small moments of catharsis throughout the tension in this film with some slapstick from them when they come into conflict with D.Va. There's a particularly hilarious moment where she shuts a cupboard door on one of their heads to knock them out. And that is particularly funny because it just... The alien just falls unconscious, and it's just funny to witness. I really enjoyed my time with this movie. I think it's got very little in common with Skinner Inc., but the thing that it has in common is that they're both experiments with what you can do with a movie. This has very little dialogue, and is mainly just visual storytelling with absolutely spectacular audio design. And Skidamoo Inc. is a tone piece that isn't fully successful, although I appreciate what it's trying to do. But I quite enjoyed this. By the end of the movie, it feels like it's taking too long and is repeating certain reveals that we already know. But I love the ending. The little ending sequence is really fun and is not the direction that you expect the narrative to go. And it makes sense. It makes sense, and it's also kind of chilling at the same time. And the reason why she's been exiled from this community is also quite distressing and sad and very real. So I I enjoyed my time with this movie. I'm looking forward to see what Diva does in the future. I know that she was in that Rosaline film, which mm. for some reason has left Disney+. Plus. So, gonna have to find a way to watch that, but I enjoyed this movie a lot. So, you've got a pith take, Lawson? I do indeed. Uh, I have finished the Tomorrow When the War Began series. I have concluded the seventh and final book, The Other Side of Dawn. Uh, Like the others, it is a young adult uh, thriller uh, written by John Marsden, and it's the grand finale. The uh, the Kiwis are mounting a big bombardment against the people who have invaded Australia. And Ellie and her friends are assisting with a saboteur campaign from the ground alongside numerous other groups just like theirs. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's the big, the big finale of this whole story. And it is all the strengths and all the weaknesses of this series rolled into one. It does do a good job of making it feel like a finale. It's propulsive. The stakes feel high, um, and it's it's surprisingly action light. Given that, like it has really one big sequence, um, and I'm glad for that because I'm kind of over the action sequences at this point. Uh, they're just so similar to everything that's come before. It's like Marsden ramped up the scale too quickly in the series and he can't get any higher so all that ends up is them you know blowing up different pieces of infrastructure every book because he's he's not he's gone too big too quickly and now that's all he can do um but uh it is that just that one um action sequence and other than that it is much more about characters much more about the emotional journeys of the characters uh and it makes some choices in the second half that I think are, that they work very well. It, it wraps things up neatly, but not cleanly, which is, I think, an honest way for this series to end. The resolutions for the characters feel earned, and they're not necessarily, you know, 
perfect endings that I'm sure a lot of fans might have wanted their favorite characters to get. But they are endings that feel justified and feel real within the story that uh, Marsden has told. And credit to him also for not putting these characters right at the center of some operation that's going to win the war or, or something. No, these are, at the end of the day, still just a group of teenagers in the bush. Um, they are doing their own thing. They're doing, you know, making life difficult for the soldiers and the battalions that are in the areas around them. But the actions that they're taking, they're just, you know, one... Annoyances. They're one more pebble on the mountain, you know? They're, they're, they're so many other people just like them that, you know, it. they're not there running some assassination campaign to get rid of the leader of the, the bad guys or something or anything like that. It's it's It does a good job of staying true to the fact that these are children still who have been caught up in events and are just doing their best. And events are happening around them, not because of them. They're just trying to survive them. Um, the most interesting uh, stuff in here for me is the way Marsden is wrapping up his uh, treaties on what war does to young people or what war does to the people who survive it. Uh, and he, the way that he has written Ellie as a survivor, I really appreciate Ellie as a character, that she is a, a person who is complicated and doesn't always make choices that endear her to the reader. She can be frustrating at times and she makes mistakes and she has flaws. And in that sense, she feels uh, like the perfect um proxy for Marsden to use to explore all of these ideas. Um, the last, I, I mean, again, I, this is an audiobook version that I listened to, so I can't tell you page count, but the last hour and a half of the audiobook actually take place after the war. So you spend a lot of time with what the state of play is actually going to be for all of these survivors, you know, how the country is going to function um, how everyone finds each other again and learning about all of the stuff that had happened that they weren't aware of. That's actually the most interesting part for me, and it's the part that has me most interested in the sequel trilogy of books that Marston wrote, which I'm going into now. Um, I think, judging by the uh, some of the, the details and open threads that he layers in, in the end of the book, I think he was probably already considering a sequel trilogy when he wrote this. But as is, it just feels honest and real that these bits of detail and bits of open thread still exist. Um, it just feels like the normal, or not normal, but like, it just feels like a believable sort of fog of post-war almost. Um, I, I did read a little bit about the reaction to the book online. I do, you know, book people are very touchy. <laughs> they're very yeah. Yeah. like but not even like there's the thing that fandoms all fandoms have which is like the don't you dare touch my thing you know don't you dare change my mm. thing um which you get from star wars to star trek to marvel to dc to anything with you know people who are very invested in the characters and the story but there's a particular thing in that i i feel like and maybe it's just my perception exists more in the literature and you know the book people. Uh, well, it's, I, I, I that, think it's because well, let me finish. Is let me finish because I might not be where you think I'm going with this, but it's a particular thing that exists more with those people where it's a sort of rejection of content 
because they don't like the content or they don't like mm. the idea. It's not necessarily where the story ends up or what they do with the characters, but it's just like, you know, at striking down something on um, on grounds of, I don't know, unpleasantness. Like, this is too unpleasant for the characters I like. I hate mm. this. Um, mm. And, yeah, there's some stuff that, particularly some choices, like I was saying, that are made in the second half of this book that uh, were referenced a lot in some of the online reviews I was reading where they were just like, I really hated like that this happened, and so I stopped reading. Um, to which I'm like, you read six and a half books, and then you stopped reading because of that. <laughs> like, mm. you know, and it's just like... Oh. Have some follow-through. Yeah. Well, but also, real- you know, isn't the point of art to sometimes make some interesting choices and some interesting pivots that maybe do make us feel uncomfortable? Or is that just a, a concept that is uh, getting lost to some people? Well, I think that for a lot of book readers, like people who are heavily into reading books, there's a level level of intimacy yeah. with a book. It's You're not being presented with something in front of you, you are imagining it happen. Yeah, that's a good and, point. Like there, There's that like, level of intimacy yeah. to it that you can't help but put yourself into it. It's like, the same reason why there are a lot of people who are very you know, protective over stories when they get adapted into other mediums, like into film. Well, There's an like, image that someone has built up in their head of what the characters look like, what they sound like, what the places look like, which yeah, uh, is... For, for example, big. I have a story about that. Uh, so, way before I ever saw Red Dragon, I still haven't seen Manhunter, I should, but I haven't. I've read, I read Red Dragon. I read the book. And... The way I pictured certain things was completely different. I didn't picture, say, Edward Norton as a lead detective. I pictured someone more akin to a detective. Think Poirot or Columbo. No, not a Poirot, John, but someone who's like in his forties, a bit heavy set, like an FBI like detective. Like a normal person. Like an average person, not a movie star. And when I pictured uh Dollarhide. Dollarhide the movie got him spot on in my estimation. Uh, Ray Franz was perfect. But when I pictured Dollarhide eating the painting of the rare dragon devouring the sun, I imagined that the painting was this huge thing that he had to slash out with a knife to tear apart so he could devour it piece by piece. And it was this like big, grand thing. Almost ritualistic. Almost ritualistic. In the movie... It was him desperately shoveling it into his mouth. Uh, so I guess like the perspective of be- of reading a novel or even listening to a novel is much more intimate because you're filling in the blanks. Uh, I know that I have that for something along the lines of Slaughterhouse Five. Like the way that I imagined that was very Edgar Rice, very much. Whenever he would jump from a thing, it would almost be. Like, a wipe goes across the screen and he's suddenly in a dome on the moon being watched by a bunch of aliens. Snap, he's back to World War. War II. And I imagined whenever certain sounds would hear, you would see the onomatopoeia almost appear in natural occurrences. Mm. That kind of thing. So... I, I kind suppose, of understand uh, yeah, where people you've, are you've getting. You've both at. gotten off to talking about something kind of completely different than yeah. <laughs> what I was no, talking about. What, what I'm but trying like, to get at is that 
the 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 structure of a novel is very very intimate yeah. with what it makes you do. It makes you picture yeah. it. I notice that it's and I notice that it's something that seems to be not to generalize, but it seems to be a lot more common among Gen Z. That yeah. that's mm. sort of like like um itchy trigger figure on this thing makes me feel uncomfortable, therefore I will describe yeah. it as bad and base my entire opinion of this piece mm. of media based on that one point. Yeah. And like, there were some a... there were some things in like the descendants, for instance, I'm sure we'll talk about it, that was like, oh Gen Z would hate this. <laughs> like, yeah. like there there is a knee jerk reaction to certain content in certain art yeah. that well, even no... if the art portrays it as something that's awful, that the knee jerk yeah. reaction is to suggest that the art is somehow endorsing it. Yeah. Um, it's very think... puritanical in that sense. Yeah, like it's it's, it's kind of What's been my issue with a lot of the more recent Disney remakes? Like, you can make your villains villainous. villainous. They yeah. can have yeah, it's like evil people... opinions. Like, yeah. uh, poor, unfortunate souls. You can have Ursula say all that shit about how men treat women up on the surface because she's a villain. She has terrible opinions. She wants to steal her voice. And it's anyway, okay if my... she's reductive. Yeah. We're running, we're already running yeah. fairly long, so. Uh... But I agree with the point you make. Yeah. But um, you guys had a piss take too, did you not? Yes. Yes. So I have. Speaking of Gen Z. <laughs> speaking of <laughs> speaking of a thing that Gen Z, yeah, I'll just I have played through because it was on the PS Plus Essentials thing, which is a subscription that you pay to get access to not only online capability for games but also discounts discounts and... on things free games monthly one of these free games was saints row the remake well, not a remake have... a reboot yeah 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 reboot Te- technically yes so i have played a few of the saints row games i haven't played the original first two but i've played three and four two's fine um you're not missing anything with one yeah I know that there's a big jump in terms of tone, and that 2 is a lot more like how the games would go on after that. I have a lot of affection for number 3. I think number 4 went too far into giving the characters superpowers and stuff, so I would usually turn that capability off. Um, But Saints Row is meant to be this more extreme, more crass, more base, more lowbrow GTA. Which is funny to say, because GTA in itself, you're going around, you're causing mayhem, you're doing rampages, you're killing everything in sight, driving yeah, fast cars. Yeah, it, but it's sort of like, it's that sort of, it cloaks itself in, yeah. like, Godfather and Goodfellas. Yeah, yeah and it's GTA got GTA is very, lowbrow, but it's got dignity. Yeah, It's got very <laughs> clever satire. Yeah. Saints Row is more uh, Sons of Anarchy meets Jackass. <laughs> Yeah. Exactly, in- including small sections called insurance fraud, where you throw yourself God, into that. oncoming traffic and all of that. So Saints Row has a sort of off-kilter, slightly edgy, but I'm talking like MA15 edge. I'm yeah. not talking about it's crude, juvenile. Crude, crude and juvenile. juvenile, dildo bats, pe- you can get guns that t- make people's heads explode. The land shark and- weapon. The land shark weapon superpowers you get in the second game. This isn't postal. This is Saints Row. But what the remake has done, this was released in 2022, is it has sanitized itself. 
in some ways, which is kind of unfortunate. And you know that I'm not a person who goes around pointing fingers and saying, oh, this franchise was ruined because it became woke. I don't believe in any of that side of things. I'm leftist as hell. But it seems like this Saints Row has tried to overcorrect to find an audience with a more quote-unquote woke audience, but has failed because it is a corporation's and a boardroom's impression of what a group of woke 20-somethings are. And this comes into conflict with the basic gameplay loop of the game. You go around, you're a criminal, you steal cars, you shoot police officers, it's the whole shebang. It's everything that mothers and parents back in the early 90s hated about video games. It's got all of that stuff, violence towards everyone of every persuasion. However, it's trying to have its cake and eat it too. That within the game, your group of friends, you all live in the same apartment because of your all of your overwhelming student debts, and members of your friendship group are either members of gangs already, or are circling around becoming part of the criminal ecosystem of this new fictional setting, Santo Alesso, which is this desert city, kind of like a Las Vegas, but not really casino-y. It has a very sort of... Not San Andreas. What's the desert portion of San Andreas map in GTA V? Oh, God, I can't remember. Sort of the Badlands kind of... Yeah, I haven't played GTA V since 2013, so... <laughs> well, to <laughs> be fair, that's when it came out. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good point. Uh, but this is trying to, as I've said, have its cake and eat it too, because all of your friends are all of these... What's the word? The stereotypes. Well, the stereotypes of 20-somethings. They don't seem to realize that your main character, your player character, is this absolutely hyper-violent, incredibly skilled mercenary who has killed more than two dozen people by the time the show, by the time the game starts. And you only kill more people from then on. And, I don't know, there's just something about this game that doesn't capture the Saints Row of it. It's a little too self-serious in moments. Your use of wacky weapons is somewhat gone. There's no laser guns anymore, or even when there are, there's sort of these nondescript, just generic plasma rifles or taser guns. The wackiest... Your silliest weapon is the the LARPing guns. Yes, because there's a LARPing subplot in this game. (laughs) Which is the best part of the game, hands down, period, because there are takedown moves you can do where it plays a little animation to instantly kill, or in the LARPing part, take down an enemy. And in the normal parts, it's you doing this John Wick stuff with knives and guns, kicking people in the dick, that whole thing. But in the LARPing parts, it's you fake pretending to rip someone's heart out, and because the entire city is part of this LARPing game, everyone plays along, even if they're members of rival gangs, even if they're members of the uh, huge mercenary company who is basically running the police in Santo Alesso. Even if they're mortal enemies of yours, they still have to play along. And that is getting closer to the Saints Row of it, 
there's nary a dildo bat in sight, but there and but that's generally the issues with the aesthetics. Oh, of the I, game. I do have some stuff to but say. But the gameplay of the game is where there are some other issues. The textures do not look like a 2022 game. Okay, so particularly one that costs sixty dollars. I didn't have to pay a thing for this, and I was still confused when this looked like a PS3 game. So, uh. Concurrently with this, uh, I've been playing through Resident Evil 4, and after that, Alan Wake 2, and looking at Saints Row, I almost threw up because of the motion sickness. There were multiple, it- there were multiple graphical glitches. There <laughs> the is a nitrous, there is a nitrous you can get for your car, and for some reason, I don't know if this is a glitch that other people have had, but whenever you do that, it looks like these two black spots shoot out of your headlights particularly when it's at night and i think it's because the meant shadows to be... can't keep up with the the lights yeah and, and pop in is terrible there are graphical anomalies and while none of this ruins the vibe of the game you're going around you're doing side missions you're doing main missions it's unavoidable it's unavoidable that some of these aspects are going to get into in the way of your enjoyment but there's enjoyment to be had here. The cars, they drive really well. And the breadth of different cars that you can get here is where some more of the Saints Row wackiness comes. Even though, obsessively, I have made sure that every car that I drive in it is painted purple because that's the color of the Second Street Saints. So I've tried to stick close to the main aesthetic of that gang in particular. But there is enjoyment to be had here. The gameplay is your general Saints Row. You're going around, you're doing odd jobs for people. But again, this isn't a step in the right direction. And it seems a little too sanitized to appeal to the main audience. And it seems, frankly, unfinished. With all the graphical glitches, the fact that this main storyline just ends. It just peters out. It just ends. And... The final mission, well, the final mission feels like a final mission, but there's no sort of lead up in terms to, yeah. of getting to that final mission. The whole LARPing side plot had much better pacing. Yeah, the pacing of the narrative is all wrong, and it's just not worth the money that people paid for it when the game came out. It's a lot cheaper now, so if you like a sort of free roam, just going around doing wacky shit, Get one of the other Saints Rows or pick this up for cheap. Because as I said, there's enjoyment to be had here, but it's not to the quality of the previous Saints Row games or even to GTA V, which has been iterated on and iterated on in the past 10 years and is still a big, big seller and a big, big thing for a lot of people. Probably not when GTA VI comes out, which... I'm excited for. Because... Oh, you know they're going to re-release five on something close to then. Oh, you, of you gotta expect that. But there is enjoyment to be had here. But all of the issues with the sort of Ludo narrative dissonance of you playing this hyper-violent murderer, while also it not being talked about within the dialogue of your gang of seemingly peace-loving people who are literally running a drug cartel. Seems a little bit... Nondescript drugs. It seems a little bit toothless, and it seems a little bit less 
out there and It doesn't funny. feel like Saints Row. And it doesn't feel like Saints Row. And there is a woeful lack of Professor Genki, which yeah. there is an entire island in the map, which is this huge murder town. Theme that after Genki. It's right there. But anyway, that's my opinions on the Saints Row reboots. So now we're going to play for you the trailer to The Descendants. Sorry to bother you. I'm Matt King. Yeah, I've come to pick up my daughter, Alexandra. Alex? Dad? <laughs> What's up, Dad? <laughs> What's happening? You need to come home and see your mom. I'm the backup parent. The understudy. I thought you were supposed to be getting your act together. I've been doing really well, actually. Nobody ever seems to notice that. And with Elizabeth, my wife, in the hospital, my daughters are testing me. Look who's here. Get out of my underwear, you freak. Oh, okay. Don't Back inside now. Real good job you're doing. We have to go through this thing together. You and Scotty and me. Dad, this is Sid. He's going to be with me. I'll be a lot more civil with him around. Set, bro? Don't ever do that to me again. I have to go around and tell people what's happening, family and a few close friends. I don't want to talk about mom with anyone. Look, whatever you two fought about, you have to drop it. Grow up. You really don't have a clue, do you? Dad, mom was cheating on you. I'd like to know who the guy is that my wife was seeing. What you've been going through, that's a tough deal. I'm just trying to keep my head above water. <laughs> I'm gonna hit you. How often do old people just haul off in cold cocky like that? was the trailer for The Descendants. It is a dramedy directed by Alexander Payne, and it is set in Hawaii, where attorney Matt King, played by George Clooney, is struggling to keep himself together through a moment of extreme crisis. His wife Elizabeth, played by Patricia Hastie, has been left comatose after a boating accident, and he's just been given the news that she will never wake up. Matt can't quite figure out how to tell his youngest daughter Scotty, played by Amara Miller, the bad news, but he manages to break things to his eldest, ne'er-do-well Alex, played by Shailene Woodley, who has been in a bitter feud with her mother that her dad doesn't know the details of. Caught between warring emotions, she spills the beans. Elizabeth was cheating on Matt with a real estate agent named Brian Spear, played by Matthew Lillard, and Alex had caught them in the act. Reeling, Matt struggles to reconcile his grief with his anger, but once he learns from Elizabeth's friends that his wife had loved Brian and planned to leave him for him, Matt reluctantly decides that Brian deserves a chance to say goodbye. The only problem is that Brian is vacationing on another Hawaiian island, so Matt, along with his daughters and Alex's friend-slash-emotional support animal, Sid, played by <laughs> Nick Krauss. Harley used the same words. 
set off to find him and maybe even come to grips with their situation along the way. So before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts on The Descendants. Why don't you start us off, John? Are you ready? Yep. Three, two, one, go. Just when you think life can't kick this man in the guts anymore, another thing happens, and then another thing, and then the audience is constantly piled on with all of these distressing, awful things happening to this guy. This is really good. This is really good. It's well acted. It's brutal. And we had a lot of difficulty finding a little quote thing for our description for this because a lot of the dialogue in this film is real nasty. You guys had difficulty. I was right there with Harley John and Lawson are putting lipstick on a corpse. (laughs) It still gets me. (laughs) It's a great line. Uh, distressing is. delivery, though. Oh, yeah. It's not funny in the movie, but in, no. in terms of our using it as an episode description. The, the amount of times where I covered my mouth or said, oh, Jesus, in this mm. movie, I can't even count the number of times. All right. You ready, Harley? Yep. Three, two, one, go. I really like this. This is not what I expected it to be. I hadn't seen any trailers, I didn't know anything about it. I, I've heard about The Descendants, I've, I've seen it pop up from time to time on recommended stuff, but I've never watched it before now, and I was utterly surprised with what it actually <laughs> turned out to be. It, it's brutal, it's heartfelt, it's very real. Like, paralleling stuff I have seen in person real. Mm. Um, but acting is great, just great stuff. You were like... I thought this was The Descendants. Where are all of the children of the Disney villains? <laughs> we made sure not to make that mistake, Lawson. I, I typed in The Descendants on Disney+, Plus and I was like, hmm, is it one of these three movies with the multicolored hair young people, or is it the one with a sad George Clooney? And I It'll figured it was the sad George Clooney. Uh, I love this movie. I think it's fantastic. I think it's brilliantly acted, but more than that, it's so well written. It's so well... Uh, put together narratively. It's about a very sort of human story and very human characters. I don't quite see it as the uh, apparently non-stop kicks to the groin that you guys seem to think it is. I think it kind <laughs> of like there's there's one or two there at the beginning, but I think it, it's mostly it just dealing with that afterwards. Um, but I think it's just, it's a very, very strong film. When it comes to the constant kicks in the groin, as you mentioned, uh, it's it's less for Matt. It's more for the audience of you enter a scene and you just think, okay, how are they going to make my stomach fall this time? I think specifically one of the parts that got me was when uh, the comatose wife's dad brought the mum out and turns out that she is suffering from memory loss or dementia or Alzheimer's. Nondescript illness. And... I think the line that got me was when the dad said, we have to go see her at the hospital. We have to get her her things and, you know, remember how she was like as a child and Take care tr- of her treat her like she she's a, a child. Girl. And when that happened, I just covered my mouth and I'm like, fucking hell, holy shit. But like, That's so sad. It's it's brutal, but the movie's also kind of yeah. funny. Oh, it's very funny. It's a comedy like, drama. See, I yeah. think I'm starting to get it. I think I'm starting to see where you're coming from. 
because I watch way more of these types of movies than you do, I take it. Yeah. It's, like, it's not a vibe that Holly and I go yeah. for with movies, which is why we were kind of surprised, but not really, when you suggested this, because I know that you in particular, Lawson, love, love movies about sad people in nice locations being depressed. I know that that is a really. genre that you like. like. I criticize. I don't know. I tend to criticize a lot of movies that are about sad people doing sad things. Like I, I think it, you need I know a that point you of watch view. Watch a lot of them. Yeah, but you need a point of view. You need, mm. and I think that's what this movie has. It's a point of view. It's a sense of humour. It's the Hawaiian landscape. It's Clooney. Mm. I mean, I, I, mm. I just Clooney that's as great. good a, a good a place as any to start. I don't think that this movie works at all if it's not someone of Clooney's caliber. I mean, this is oh. the George Clooney show. Um, oh, yeah, and he, he specifically wanted to play a character who doesn't have everything together. Yeah. And he should be allowed to do that more, because he's so good here. This he, feels like a Mel Gibson role. Eh, not really. You, you, I, I don't, you I don't, could see him in it. Not really. Yeah, like, not I really. can see, I can picture him as in visually I can picture him, but I can't picture the same level of like vulnerability and the mm-hmm. the egolessness of it. Yeah, um, I, I I love how I love everything about Clooney's performance here. At points he has the dead eyes. At points he just needs to expel his rage. Yeah, he's dancing at, at as fast situation. as he can. He's a guy yeah. who's in this incredibly difficult situation and he can't react to it. The way that he would necessarily react to it, you know, unfettered, unrestrained, mm. because he's got the amount of emotional, the amount of emotional plates this man is spinning. Not to mention the fact that that land sale is coming up, and he's got to deal with his cult of cousins. Basically, yeah, we can get to that, but that's the one part of the movie I'm like, I don't think we need this yeah. in the uh, movie with, <laughs> with the cousins and the land deal. I like the land deal as a plot point. But the cult of cousins felt very uh, Boyle-esque from Brooklyn Nine Nine. They're um, all dressed in these. They're all in Hawaiian, Hawaiian shirts, shirts and khaki pants. And the description <laughs> of them Cargo was shorts. that they all. And the description of them is that they basically all pissed away their money, so they're coming to George Clooney to get a piece of the action for this huge land sale because they would all get some he's money out of it anyway. Of but he's the, the trustee. The yeah. So they're well, all well, you've started halfway through it. this subplot. The subplot yeah. is is that they're all descended from this uh, Hawaiian princess who, uh, as part of the you know marriage or whatever to this you know wealthy um, or not well, I don't know. I didn't really care that much about this colonialist subplot. stuff. Yeah, colonialists. Well, no, the the Hawaiian princess wasn't a colonialist. Well, no, she wasn't. But like, there was a. She There's married, colonialism in yeah, the history. She married someone who came over to the Hawaiian Islands years ago, and there was like basically their family has ended up um, being owning Obscenely a trust, obscenely wealthy. Uh, yeah, own, and owning a trust of land that now, due to legal stuff and you know th- things of that nature, um, their ownership of the land is set to expire in seven years, and so they're looking to offload it. They're looking to sell it. And they're coming up on this vote amongst all of the cousins where they will decide who to sell it to. And George Clooney is the sole trustee. He's well, just yeah, he's the one who actually gets the say of who it is. It's just he's 
you know, involving his uh, his cousins in the decision. And there's so many of them because this was so long ago that it's been filtered down with so many different offshoots of the family. But I just didn't think that that was a plot that, I mean, I get, I get kind of what it's doing, that it's sort mm. of about, you know, the res- the the responsibility to family and place and community, mm. which is the same thing that Clooney's struggling with the whole way through. It's, you know, he's been kind of a distant father, a distant husband, and he's learning about the, you know, responsibility of staying there through the hard stuff and sticking it out and being there. Yeah, but it just, fe- it just- it feels distant from the rest of it. Yeah, I mean, it's one and there's of there's a hilarious number of cousins yeah. that we see. Like, an insane number. The real no, strength no, not is... really insane. Like, if you go back to the fact that this was apparently two or three hundred yes. years ago, like... But you know what I mean. There's too many that we see. I don't think there is. Like, I think that you're anyway. underestimating the amount of, of different cousins and different offshoots that there would be. Because yeah. think of well, it. If you have, let's say... This princess lady. Well, let's let's say this princess lady has three kids, and they all had three kids. Well, all of a sudden, you've got nine cousins right there. Now, let's say they didn't have three kids, but they all had, you know, two kids. All of a sudden, you got eighteen. And then, as the years go by and generations go by, I'm just saying it seems completely feasible. How did all of these cousins financially shit the bed and waste their inheritances? Well, I don't. I think you're paying a lot of attention to a single light, like. Clooney says a lot of them haven't been particularly careful with their money, but he doesn't say that they're bankrupt. Um, yeah. You know. Well, let's move away from this subplot and go back to the actual meat of the thing, which is what the movie has to say about grief mm. and loss. Not just the loss of a person, but what you thought about the person, who you thought the person was. Yeah. And that is its own type of grief. And it just complicates the first. And what Clooney's going through is not exactly unheard of in the genre, but the way that it's delivered is, I think, exceptionally well done because of its reality. Yeah, it's 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 funny and it's sad and it's caustic, of, often all at the same time. Yeah. Um, Clooney was nominated for an Oscar um, for Deservedly. this. He... Uh, I think it's, you know, they never released the actual voting numbers, but I think it's generally well considered that he probably was second place uh, and quite close to the win. Uh, but ultimately, the guy from uh, The Artist, who we'd never heard of before and never will again, won instead. Um, but uh, it's a, a very, yeah, I keep coming back to Clooney because he's so astonishingly good and he is the spine of the mm. movie. He is what the whole story and the whole all the tone of it, the atmosphere of it, the meaning of it, it's all centered around him. And I, I think, you know, it's a good example of, it's kind of a popcorn term, but like what an what a real movie star can do. Yeah. And when I say yeah. movie star, I don't mean Jason Statham or Matt Damon or anything, or, you know, commercial, what commercially a movie star means, but a movie star in terms of someone who can walk onto the screen and be like, okay, this person has all of my attention right now. Yeah, yeah and just a grade A actor. It's yeah. like a, a triple A. It's like a pit or a gosling. Mm. Like they just they have something in them in their delivery yeah. in their performance where you can tell that this is a person who was born to lead movies. Exactly. Yeah. There's, there's that, an that, what, like I don't like to say this a lot, but I will in this case. There's an innate thing there that just makes them fascinating to watch. 
Mm. Yeah. And and the talent is there to back it up too. It's not just talk. They they have the method and the focus and the delivery to do it. I I love the scene where uh Clooney is he's talking to his wife. And this is a little bit after he's found out about the affair and he just goes off. Yeah, that's my favorite scene, yeah. Like like he loses his composure and he just gets angrier and angrier until he's got almost nothing left and he just says I would have divorced you at some point because you're my pain. And there's just it's not my favorite moment. See, but- I, I don't think I don't I didn't read that at face value. I didn't read it as that as he was actually going to divorce her at some point. No, I, 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 he was yeah. lashing out. He was yeah. lashing out. Like I I didn't I read that more as like, oh, you thought you were going to divorce me? Well, I was going to divorce you. Yeah, like, it was, yeah. The, it was the last sort of like, he was being petty. Yeah. Because that's that's all he had left. But what makes, actually... that scene, what makes that scene so interesting is that it's preceded by the fact that he's bringing his two daughters to come and see yeah. their mother. And he just says, hang on a sec, can I just have a moment alone with her? And he closes the door and he just sort of goes off at her in whispers yeah. so that they don't hear. And then he collects himself and brings his daughters in. and. Um, His daughter Shail- goes off. Yeah, Shailene Woodley's character, Alex, basically starts to do the same thing, and he shuts it down. Yeah. Um, because that's, you know, he's trying to juggle those balls. Well, yeah. he, he also, the way he says, don't take her away from your sister. Yeah. And, like, it's, th- it's such an interesting real-life wrinkle that happens. You want to, you want to be angry. You want to say everything you need to say to a person when they are going to pass. It's especially and, if the, yeah. the 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 reason they're in that condition has been self-destructive. And you can have an anger there, and I've felt that before, but you're also upset that they're not there or they're not conscious to respond to you. Hmm. And there's there's just something so grounded about that complexity of emotion and the dialogue and the acting just makes it work and everyone who's doing this dialogue works with it so well shailene woodley and george clooney being of particular interest here because in those scenes where they are talking to each other about the infidelity of his wife you can see that they both understand that it happened but they can't quite square it with the person who they knew and that this has caused major rifts between mother and daughter, and that this has been a long time coming. Woodley and Clooney have really great chemistry together as oh, yeah. father and daughter. Um, and it's interesting, like, Wood- Woodley, obviously, um, she she had been around before this, but this was sort of her breakout role in terms of, briefly at least, launching her into sort of the A-list tier of this generation of actress. Um, yeah. She did end up doing the Divergent Divergent franchise, which seems to have put a halt to that. Um, but uh, she had been doing movies, be- um, movies before, and she had been doing some TV series before, most notably, uh, I believe it was called The Secret Life of the American Teenager. But um, it's such an interesting performance and such an interesting character, it's such a well-observed character, because she's sort of of that age where she is becoming intellectually closer to her parents you know yeah. what i mean she's not a, a a child or an infant anymore um yeah. she is 
on more a more equal footing with them in terms of personality, in terms of being able to argue her case, in terms of you know, you know, having you know valid opinions and perspectives, and you know that stuff actually having or starting yeah. to have as much weight as her parents. But well, not it, only it's, that she... it's that awkward wobbly mm. bit before that transition has become complete, where she's still acting out, she's still drinking, she's still a bit of yeah. a hellraiser, she's still immature, but she is someone who is engaging with her father, especially during this movie, in a more like um, collaborative sense. And I yeah, like, like how that she... they are they are each other's emotional support. Yeah, mm. when when Alexandra finds out what. Uh, her father th- th- intends to do. She's on board mm. like the whole time uh, with hunting down Spears, or and- even how like they strategize when they go to confront him at the <laughs> thing. Like they're working together, and like there's they're in like total lockstep, and it's yeah. great. Um, because along with Alexandra, she brings along her emotional support animal, <laughs> Sid. Yeah, <laughs> Sid, bless him. I mean. <laughs> He he is, I think, necessary in that he leavens the tone oh, when it's yeah. when it's necessary. Um, in terms of actual plot structure, he's not necessary at all. No, but he is. He's just fun to have along for the bride, even though I do question his parents' judgment in allowing their apparently underage son to go off on a middle-aged man. Quixotic attempt to track down his wife's affair partner to really stick it to him. Well, it's really only the mum. <laughs> Because well, it's really you, only the mum. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that well, point. that's right. I yes, that is the the um, thematic parallel is that yeah. if anything, he he gives Clooney a different perspective into what his daughters are going through. Yeah, and and what I I do love that scene where Clooney can't sleep. He walks out and he starts talking to Sid, mm. and you know Sid's not exactly the most eloquent guy. Uh, he, he's not he's, the smartest. He is guy. often stupid, but he does have hidden depths. Like, like he says, he, like he's not a complete idiot. Um, he's just a little frayed. And what, what, and when he mentions that his dad has recently passed, that that clicks something into mind for Clooney. Yeah. Well, it's to- like that scene is very interesting because it's like Clooney's testing him. It's like, yeah. and it's 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 almost it's not something that he was necessarily planning to do. I don't think. I think it's a something that he's sitting there at night, and it's all of that emotion and all of that anger is rolling around in his head. And there's probably a part of him that is hoping that Sid's going to say something stupid and he's going to be able to pick a fight. And yeah. I think mm-hmm. that that's a really interesting dynamic that's played very well by Clooney and by Krauss. That um, mm. Krauss plays it that Sid knows exactly what's going yeah. on there and knows exactly what the emotional dynamic of that scene is. He might be an idiot, but he's quite emotionally intelligent. Yeah. And there's a like he he engages with Matt in a way that I think is um, you know, just gives him what he needs, I suppose. He he's also their cheerleader. Yeah. He's he's one hundred percent ride or die. <laughs> which I really, really dig. Because I was starting to get annoyed with him um the moment he started laughing when uh, the grandmother walked out. Well, yeah, because he's like... He laughed He laughed about the Queen Elizabeth thing. Yes. Because he's... Uh, okay, so we need to explain that for anyone who's not watched it, but yeah. the um, Elizabeth is in the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, uh, and uh, they say, you know, we're, we need to go to the Elizabeth 
you know, in the Queen Hospital, whatever. And she's like, oh, we're going to see Queen Elizabeth. What, whatever will I wear? And, you know, she's she's not, she's disassociated. She's not with it um, because of her, her illness. And Sid starts laughing because he thinks that she's making a joke because he's an idiot. Yeah. Um, but, the, but so the, 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 the grandfather, just, well, the like, scene just continues. Right like, they, they both, <laughs> they look at him in horror. And then, then he says, the best part of that scene to me is when he says, oh, come on. I think she knows she's being funny. <laughs> yeah. And it's then the grandfather walks so up awkward. like fucking cold cocks mm. him right in the face. Robert Forster. No, he says, I'm going to punch you now. Yeah. Robert Forster from, um, <laughs> from Jackie Brown. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. And, I thought and- he was all, I, I, I saw him and I was like, God, he looks like Ollie Ermy. Yeah, And he then does. I had to look it up yeah. because mm. I, I legit thought that was him and I was going to say, you don't want to get on this guy's bad side because <laughs> well, he it, will demolish you. Well, when it cuts to the next scene and they're in the car and he, the, the Sid says oh, something like, guy. "Is that do old guys do that a lot? Just cold cock you with no warning? And um, and Matt says, he's hit me a few times over the years. Yeah. Like there is there is something that's running through it here about that there there is a juxtaposition there of um, the way Forster interacts with Clooney and the way Clooney interacts with Sid that hmm. there's this sort of like and that's i mean it gets to the whole point of the movie doesn't it, it gets to the title of the film the descendants it's about parents and their children um hmm. and you know stretching all the way back to this this princess lady i should say before i forget again because i forgot to write it down in the uh pl- plot summary um that this is actually based on a novel written by yes. a, w- a woman named uh i believe kui hart um kui hart hemming sorry so um yeah, that it that whole business subplot and the thematic connections to what's going on in the family seems very literary in nature. Oh yeah, yeah. it it might work better in a book mm. for for pace reasons, I think, because you know there's difficulty trans in translation. Because it's like we leave this like sub- I, I, I'm just saying I don't the... have the context of the book and I haven't yeah. read it, but I I imagine. In terms of pace and weight, it works better mm. in the literary form. Yeah. Well, I I wonder like, and it's something that we just don't have the time to uh to deal with in the movie. But I think it's somewhat unnecessary in terms of the the universality of this story yeah. that they're trying to I tell and so. the emotional immediacy of the story to try and tell to throw in the fact that they're millionaires. And they're the yeah. trustees of this, you know, generations long connection going back to Hawaiian royalty. Like it's a it's a weirdly extra thing yeah. to add on top of what is a very raw emotional kind of kind of bit. Like if you go to the IMDB for this movie, the plot summary is He's a land know, baron. Yeah, it describes him as a land baron, which is accurate but completely misleading as to the tone of this <laughs> exactly. movie and yeah, what when that I think, is. When I think Land Baron, I think of Killers of the Flower Moon. Yeah. I think of someone who is holding their land rights over people. I'm thinking cigarettes and top hats going, business is good! It's a, it's a weird little thing that you sort of get the impression wouldn't be in here if they were writing it for the, for the screen yeah. from whole cloth. But yeah, it, it does whenever... give us some great landscapes. Yeah, and... Yeah. Whenever they mention it, I'm like, it just feels unconnected. It feels weird. It it doesn't seem necessary for the narrative, and it 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 feels like it's just there to stress Matt out. Yeah, yeah. 
what I what I do love, I love the setting that it's Hawaii, but it's yeah. not just like coastal resorts. We do go to you know beaches and coastal resorts, but it's not solely that. Hawaii has cities and jungles. It is jungles. It is it is a place. It's a fully fledged human society. There, it's a place it, like any other. It's not this yeah. idealized idea. I do love me the uh, the aesthetic of the snowy, wooded, mountainous areas with lakes and stuff. But I've mm. got to say that you know there's just some truly spectacular, like tropical shots. The, the bit where here. the part where they're on the ridge and they're looking right down at that beach. Mm, yeah, beautiful. I mean, um, yeah, that's what you get when you shoot in Hawaii, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's uh, like they shot Lost there for all six seasons. Yeah, which is you know my my. The, the pure duration of me watching images of Hawaiian landscapes is probably comprised mostly of all six <laughs> seasons of Lost. But, yeah. like, it really is a gorgeous, like, green and blue and, and mm. like, astonishing-looking space. It's like, the reason why the natural beauty of Hawaii is something that should be protected. Yeah. Well, let's, I, talk, I, a, let's talk about Brian. Yeah. Um, because you said before we uh, we came on to um, start the recording, John, um, you were surprised that it was Matthew Lillard. Yeah, I was surprised that it was Matthew Lillard because it turns out that Shaggy's been shagging his wife. <laughs> well, that's the the story that um, Matthew Lillard tells on the uh, behind the scenes documentary on the disc is that he was actually in a rush the day that he came to audition because he was actually going to the world premiere of one of those Scooby-Doo director DVD movies that he made. Yeah. And he had his kids in the car because they wanted to come and see it. So he came in and did it really quickly. And he was like, I didn't <laughs> think I'd get it because who would honestly believe that someone would cheat on George Clooney with me? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and when, when, uh, when they showed his picture, I was like, really, him? lady? It's Matthew Lillard. Okay. But it's, it's a great performance. It's a great little oh, performance from him. fantastic. And it's fascinating in terms of the uh, the falseness of it, but the the desperateness of it as well. Yeah. Like all his interactions with Clooney and the way that he, like the power dynamic of that, and the way that he sort of deflates also, is so yeah, and it's, interesting. And it's mm. it's the thing of who would cheat on George Clooney with Matthew Lillard, and who would cheat on Judy Greer? Yeah, like, Judy Greer. It, it's like Judy Greer seems- is another. Um, Another great yeah. get for the movie, and she yeah. has such a small, small yeah. part, really. But, but she does the whole gamut. Yeah, she 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 gets to run up and down the keys on the keyboard, and like, she and the makes a meal of it. And the character just seems like a lovely person. Yeah, mm. it's like a genuinely nice, nice family-oriented person who Brian cheats on in what he describes as a moment of weakness. Yeah, um, and. There's that moment when, as they're kissing goodbye after, like, the kiss on the cheek and everything mm. as they're leaving, Matt intentionally turns and kisses her on the mouth. Mm. Um, and it was a moment that I kind of recoiled at when I watched it. And uh, I was it's like, so oh, awkward. Why did they take it? Why did they take it in that direction? But the further I get from that, the more I think it works so well dramatically and so well yeah. in terms of the arc of. It's the closest he can. It's the closest he can get to saying it. Yeah, but it's also like this self-destructive, impetuous, like mm. bitter action. Yeah. Um. That 
is in keeping, I think, with what I like most about the movie, which is that it allows its characters to be messy and flawed and not and perfect people. And spiteful, yeah. Um, like even like the the showdown with uh, with Matthew Lillard's character. I mean, there is no <laughs> there is no sort of like holier than thou or, or eloquence in the way that uh, Clooney confronts him like he's there at the front door with um with uh alex and you know they Mm. get judy greer out of the scene for a minute so they can talk to him one-on-one and he just says elizabeth is dying wait fuck you and she's dying (laughs) like Mm, yeah it's this it's this very like sharp aggressive thing and and it it just feels unvarnished in a way that i appreciated unvarnished but also like we've talked a bit about you know, how the movie does deal with this messy stuff. Unvarnished, yes, but unvarnished without it being just, I don't I don't know, just misery porn, you know? Yeah. There's this sort it's, of like sometimes when you you see a movie that's just so dour and so morose and it's just it's just to the point of being masturbatory. That, yeah. There's enough life here, there's enough humour here to make it feel real. Like, there is humor in these situations when you are stressed out, when you are grieving. Someone says a joke and you just laugh, or a memory comes into your head, or all of these things happen, and there is. It's meant to be messy. Yeah. And it, this movie's yeah. allowed itself to be messy, and that's why the script is so good. And, like, the thing for me that works most about that interaction with Matthew Lillard is. The last few things they say, Clooney asks, have you ever seen the inside of my bedroom? And then uh, Spears said, yes, once. And then Clooney's like, jeez, man, you could have lied to me for that one. Yeah. Then he says- He's pushing it, like, he's asking a question he really doesn't want to know the answer to. Yeah. And then Spears responds with, okay, twice. (laughs) Uh, Like, there's something just so- because that's really the most we get of Spears. Is that scene? Mm. That's really our only look at who he is mm. as a person. But he was not in love. And you see the desperation Elizabeth. in his face when he says that he loves his wife, he loves his family. And Matthew Lillard does such a good job at walking that line between being a man who clearly cheated on his wife and is and probably shouldn't be forgiven by his wife for that. But also, you see that he regrets it, and you're watching a man drown in real time. Yeah, it's good that they've towed that line to make it that he's not just this arch villain that was that it was set up that he was that he was a flawed individual like all of these people. And the way but that he's... Judy Greer is used is sort of as the mirror image of Matt. Hmm. Yeah. Um. Right down to when she goes to forgive ostensibly uh, elizabeth she has the same sort of like she flame out it. that uh, that matt did earlier on in the in the film yeah and, and I matt, have to give has, major matt props. has to bring her down from it yeah and then the the moment after that between uh the moment right before she dies with clooney the monologue he says there like the whole you are my joy you are my pain that whole thing it's just so well delivered. And I've got to give credit to the actor who plays Elizabeth, because I don't know if there was like a... I don't know if she was in the bed the whole time, 
because that's really difficult to do. But uh, Patricia, Patricia Hasty, I think she was in bed for a lot of the scenes, actually performing. Uh, I don't have any reason to expect that, but it does give me a reason to discuss an element of acting we don't often get to address. Coma acting, or sleep acting. Not reacting. Not reacting, essentially. Acting. You will hear drama teachers across the world say acting is reacting, but in very specific circumstances, a performer can't because of the confines of their character. And obviously one would think that like a like a model a model duplicate has been put into the bed. But one, that's crazy expensive to make a a false person look lifelike, but it's also really difficult for an actor to make that kind of thing work. Um not reacting to things, not falling asleep, not developing bed sores over the countless takes that sometimes movies take to make. And that's very interesting. I'd be really fascinated to see if that's what they did, if they actually had her in the bed for those sequences. So, like, I don't know. I could see it going either way, but she just looks much too lifelike to not be a real person. I don't know. It's it's a difficult thing to sort of square without actually knowing all the details about and the behind the scenes. when you see her after she's been unhooked from the machines, it's harrowing. Because yeah. you're seeing a person who... For all intents and purposes, is just a body that there is no function left, that the machine is all that was keeping her alive, and that after she's been removed from the machine, it's just the waiting game. And it's harrowing to look at, because... There's the intellectual understanding that they're not there, but the emotional understanding that they still are, because you're putting them there. They... They still inhabit that one space until the body dies, and then and then you can let go of that understanding of them. And, and I, I've seen that. I've I've been through that, and it is a very complex experience. That palliative care is very tough to go through as as someone who's present in the room. Um, and I think that they made that work exceptionally well here. What worked most for me in that is when Elizabeth's parents show up in the room, and the the parents, particularly the father, they don't know that Elizabeth cheated. I they really thought that Sid was going to spill the beans. I thought that's why you've kept him around, isn't it? That's it. Like <laughs> narratively, he's gonna he's gonna you know. Yeah, but I'm glad that it resisted that, that, hand that urge. Grenade is going to go off. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad it resisted that urge, though. I gl- I'm glad but, they resisted but, the urge to make Matt the martyr mm. in everyone's eyes. But Sid mm. still stands up for Matt. Yeah, and so does his. Uh, so does his daughter. And I think that the decision to preserve her memory for her parents—it's a complex one. Mm. Yeah, because there's people, and then there's the people we think people are. Yeah. There's the image of them that we build up in our minds. It is not something we consciously do. It's just something we do as storytelling animals. It it would really damage their continuity of self if they knew that their daughter was a cheater, that they knew that their daughter was reckless. They need to blame someone other than the person that they raised. Because what they're struggling with is life being out of sequence mm. because they they don't expect to watch their daughter who was in the prime of her life 
die. They fully expect to go first because that is that is the natural function of things. And I don't know. There's a lot going on for a lot of the characters that just make it messy, but also a perfect representation of what that's like. Yeah, like people obviously, aren't... it's it's not as like the people we've seen pass have been old, but I can only imagine what it's like to watch something be out of sequence like that. People aren't ready for the stillness of a dead body or the stillness of someone who is passing. And I think that's the thing that got to me the most, because we've been there when people were going to pass and then had passed. And usually you don't see it done so well in a movie, and they do it beautifully here, that it feels so real. And that's what I can say about, not to pull this entire conversation into too much of a dour, miserable place, but real is what a lot of this movie feels like. That it is these real messy people in a really shitty situation, and everything that piles on is something conceivably that could happen, and probably has happened to someone. Well, I feel like we're reaching the end of this conversation, Uh, so unless either of you have something to add... Why don't we move on to, say, who we would recast with Muppet versions in The Muppets, The Descendants. Uh, and I have strong opinions here. Uh, I'll let you being... go first. Pardon? Clooney is Kermit if he was a human. No, 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 no. No, stay with me here. The okay. daughters remain the same. The, the daughters All remain right. the But humans. it sounds like you're going to go into a pretty contentious place. No. Fozzie is Matt. <laughs> Um, you just said you weren't going to a contentious place. I don't know. Okay, I don't, I, I don't think look, Fozzie John, I'm, 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 bear I'm with in me here. with Lawson here. That works. Bear with me here. Um, Haha, funny, because it's Fozzie <laughs> Bear. Kermit as Brian. Ooh, and then Miss Piggy as the Judy Greer character. Like, Ooh. Judy Greer just going fucking ballistic. Like, Miss Piggy going fucking ballistic in that hospital room. Like... I'm, I'm just saying, you take the image of Kermit and yeah, you completely, you completely stick the knife in. You turn it on its head. Mm. Um, I, I do think that Kermit's played a lot of heroes. He would like to have the experience <laughs> of playing mm. a not so. So you want to diversify guy. his filmography? Exactly. And uh, I, I Kermit's get, an actor. See, I, I'm just not sure about Fozzie Bear. I'm not sure about Fozzie. I think there's another Muppet we can put in there that. It works better but for. Fozzie works works there in my opinion because he's the he, that whole I'm dancing as fast as I can. I'm trying to keep all the juggles in here. I'm so unequipped emotionally to handle all of the trauma that's happening, and still I've got to be the person who's keeping it all together for these kids. Ah, like that. Waka waka. Yeah, I can see yeah. it. No, I, I I fully agree. And I think maybe like. I know that George Clooney projects a strength because he's George Clooney, but the character here has a vulnerability. But a I desperation. Think, yeah. Yeah, I was I was going to say Kermit is the Muppet George Clooney would be. Do you agree? Like, he's got the same suaveness. He's got he's the, the same... He's leading man. ...stature. He's a leading man. See, now, I think, I think Kermit's more of an Edward Norton type. Like, oh, you think he would push for script changes? George, well, George it. Clooney's just a little too, like... A little too matinee idol for Kermit. Mm. Right, really? Yeah. Kermit's... I have the opposite opinion of Kermit. I think Kermit is the... You think he's a real fox. You, you're you ready? You're ready for a, a George... 
Do we know who you're going to be casting Kermit as in Fifty Shades of Grey? <laughs> Kermit is the sexiest Muppet award. <laughs> no, no. Uh, okay, so for but the rest of the cast, you get what I mean, right? Like Kermit's the A-list, though. Kermit is the yeah, money but only guy. because he's the face. Only yeah, he's the face, but that doesn't mean that he fits Clooney's vibe. I, I mean, do it's think like he's more of an Edward Norton type. Look, and just because. I have said repeatedly, and I stand by the fact that George Clooney was engineered in a lab to excite women, basically, that he's a fucking prince. Like, that doesn't okay. correlate that I think <laughs> Kermit is that. All right, let's get on to the rest of the cast. Um, I think that you do Link, the, the Hogthro- Link Hogthrob as Sid. I don't know, I was he thinking is an Gonzo idiot. as Sid. Or now, Gonzo's, Floyd Pepper? Gonzo's too smart. Like... I'm just thinking of that one scene where it's like the the mother comes out. I'm just thinking of Link Hogthrob go, oh, come on, I think she knows she's being funny. Like, that only fits Link Hogthrob. It doesn't fit Gonzo. It doesn't fit Gonzo wouldn't Pepper. say that. Gonzo might not no. be the brightest, but... Gonzo has it, a better sense of uh, emotional intelligence. I, Gonzo I could can be, read a room. I could be negotiating into Dr. Teeth for the role of Sid. But yeah, I think I can, Doc, but I Dr. Dr. Teeth... Floyd Pepper... But Maybe both of them, the problem than... with both of them for me is that they have a, more of a sense of maturity to them. Yes, they might that, be that's like true. hippie counterculture, Animal. sure. Animal. Yeah, but they're old guard hippie yeah. counterculture. See, I would say that like Animal Dr. isn't vocal enough. Yeah, Doctor Teeth or or um, Floyd, they work more for me as the Bo Bridges character, the mm. the chief cousin mm. who like threatens George Clooney at the end when he decides not to sell the land. We're coming after now, Come on, Matt! Um, I agree with you, Jean. Sam the Eagle as the Robert Forster character. Um, Seeing a punch. Well, I was thinking him. Statler and or Waldorf. Uh, I, well, I think you could also have Statler and Waldorf as the cousins. The angry cousins. Yes. Yeah, actually, that, actually they yes, work a lot better that's there. That's much better. Um, Janice and Rolf as the friends. Mm. Um, yep. And... Uh, I did have Gonzo in as that random, like, tanned guy who was driving the boat. Because <laughs> it's like, it's he's like one of, his, one of his, he, like, stunts gone wrong. <laughs> yeah. He's reckless. He's also, reckless. I love, also, I love the idea of him with huge bulging muscles in a Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> and, and, and he just he looks at him, him and it's like, oh, this is part of the outfit. All right. No, but I, I, I think that I yeah, think that's that a solid cast list for that. Yeah, I, I'm. I would have to see it in motion to see if I agree with the Kermit thing. I, I, I get it. Don't think I don't get. It. I get it, but uh, okay. Just like yeah. picture Fozzie in the. He's in his flip flops and he's running down the street to he's talk to Kermit his wife's just... friends. Like that's way more of a Fozzie thing than a Kermit thing. I think. Yeah, that's funny if you think of any Muppet doing that. Mm. That's true. Um, Just any Muppet hearing that their wife has cheated on them and then running down the street is a hilarious image. Um, it makes the movie a flat comedy. Oh, even, even, yeah, yeah. So uh, now why don't we move on to say who our MVP for this movie is, what our favourite scene or sequence is, and of course, who we would recast with this podcast patron saint, character actor John Lithgow. Knock, knock, who's there? <laughs> I will start us off, and I will say that my MVP here for this movie has got to be George Clooney. Like, it could not be anyone else. 
Uh, this is as good as I've ever seen him be in a movie. He is really spectacular. He's fantastic. He nails everything he needs to nail. He's the emotional spine. He's the heart of the movie. He is the wit and the soul of it. The movie doesn't work without him. And I'm not sure that there are many other actors who can nail it in quite the same way. Um, so I'm going with Clooney. In terms of uh, who... In terms of my favourite scene or sequence, I've already said that. It's the scene where he's by himself with his wife and he really just goes off at her for everything he's learned and he just has this meltdown. And it's very, um, you know, kind of mean and bitter and sad and it's very human and it's a moment that I think that a lot of other movies would not allow their main character to have for fear of making them seem unlikable. But this is a movie that, is willing for its main character to make decisions that seem unlikable and behave in ways that aren't perfect. You know, he's not a saint. He's not um, a martyr. He's a guy who's trying to cope. And I think that you know that scene really sums up the the bitter edge that I think gives this entire movie uh, the power that it has. In terms of who I would recast with this podcast's patron saint, character actor John Lithgow, I thought about this because you could see him and and perhaps the impulse would be to have him as either the Robert Forster character or mm. perhaps more so as the Bo Bridges character. But when I was thinking and like imagining him in the movie, I thought, you know what? Actually like 40 year old John Lithgow would do really good things as Matt. Yeah. I think that he would really fit that. He has, he would be able to, to match that tone, that guy who's just trying to make sure that things don't fall apart while at the same time he's falling apart himself. The wit would be there. The vulnerability would be there. And he's just hes as good of an actor as Clooney. He could nail those same emotional beats and he could nail those same, you know, difficult bits. He could thread that needle. And so uh, I'm going to, to put him in the role there because I think that he would do a spectacular job. Uh, so for me, I'm going to have to say my MVP is George Clooney. He is the son that this revolves around. He is its spine. He keeps it together. And I love me a dramatic George Clooney performance. He's not trying to be a charming uh, lead of a heist team. He's not trying to be some very prominent secret agent or whatever. He's not doing a high concept role. This is, he's playing a guy. He's just playing a guy. and. I love a good dramatic turn from Clooney because that's when he can really show that it's not just a face. He's not just a face. Yeah. He has this deep bed of talent that runs through everything he does when he's given the chance. And Clooney is one of my very favorite actors because of that. Not only does he have that old school movie star energy, he has the chops to back it up. And you don't get that a lot today. Um, it does happen from time to time, but still, it it's rare to see. And he's perfect here. Everything he does is hitting the nail on the head. My favorite, is, my favorite scene or sequence differs. It's the bit right near the end when uh, Matt is talking to Elizabeth right before she's about to pass. And he says, Goodbye, Elizabeth. Goodbye, my love. My friend. My pain. My joy. Goodbye. 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 There's a, there's a simple elegance to that moment. 
It's straightforward. It's not trying to be this complex thing. It's he's still in pain. He is still angry, but it has finally he has finally reached that point of acceptance. Like he's still going to deal with all that complicated grief, but it's he's able to start getting through it now. Um also got to give credit to the scene where he tells his friends and fa- like tells all of tells all of Elizabeth's friends that she's dying. Uh and someone asks, uh so can we go see her? And he just like breaks down and says, "Yes, 100% yes, absolutely go, go now." Don't wait till after, go now. Yeah. And just the raw emotion of that moment. Like he's almost relieved someone else brought it up. Um I don't know, that's a really great moment too. And I entirely agree with Lawson here. 40-year-old John Lithgow can really, really dig deep into the character of Matt. He's just as good as Clooney. Um, He's got a lot more experience in the character actor field, but I do think that he can nail the humor, he can nail the pain, and the rage. And it's a great, substantial, meaty role for Lithgow. And I think that he would really, really do well in the role. For my MVP, it's George Clooney. I mean, the man makes the dialogue sing. He is a God's honest movie star. He is a he's just one of those talents. And it's incredible to see him in a performance where he shows so much humanity and shows so much vulnerability. And it's always great to see an absolute masterclass from one of these triple A actors. For my favorite scene or sequence, I agree with Lawson. It's the scene where he breaks down in the hospital room to his wife. Because you're seeing just, again, a masterclass from Clooney. And it's so well written and so well performed. And the quick switch he makes from when he's expelled all of his energy, got gotten rid of all that venom, and then brings his daughters in. And then when Shailene Woodley starts going off, he stops her and says, don't take her away from your sister. I think it's a fantastic scene, and it runs through sort of a speed run of the themes of the entire film. For who I would get John Lithgow as, I think Matt is a good pick for John Lithgow, because a 40-year-old John Lithgow could do all of these things, that neurotic energy of trying to keep all of the plates spinning, the fact that he has to make sure everyone's okay before he makes sure that he is okay. And the fact that he can break down like that. I think the comedy aspect and the drama aspect tied in makes Lithgow a really good pick for the character. So, now we are going to put it to a vote. Whether or not we are a pro The Descendants podcast or not. Lawson, I can almost anticipate what your choice is going to be. So why don't you start us off? Uh, I'm pro The Descendants. I think that this is a spectacular film. It's so well acted. It's brilliantly written. uh, And it holds up so well i mean every time i see another one of these you know award-winning films that was nominated for best picture in 2011 that win for the artist just seems more and more bizarre like yeah. <laughs> if it's like that clooney was passed over too like this is a, a fantastic career best turn from him um it's a movie with pathos with humor with heart i'm saying yes yeah i second everything lawson said the the artist just seems so separate from all these other nominees that we've been seeing, or that Lawson has been seeing. And it's Clooney at his finest. It is a bunch of really, really strong uh, supporting actors. 
even Lily gets a chance to act his ass off. And yeah, it's just great. It's acerbic, it's witty, it's funny, it's devastating, it's grounded and real. And we also get the benefit of some lovely Hawaiian landscapes. Uh, so it's going to be a pro for me. Yeah, it's a pro for me because of all of the reasons listed by both of you, the script is so good, the characters work so well, the way that the movie moves, aside from all of the subplot with the cousins and everything. I think a lot of this stuff is really high-quality stuff. And they should have given this one to Clooney, honestly, because the artist, as decent as I remember that movie being, was a gimmick movie. It was a flash in the pan, and it was appealing to the Hollywoodness and the nasal-gavingness of the Academy. And the quality of this performance, it deserved an Oscar, I believe, but... Hey, what do I know? I'm not I'm not some rich old person who runs the Academy. I don't have voting powers, but you know, the audience knows that if I could vote on the thing, a lot of weird stuff would get through. But yeah, it's a pro for me. 4K, so, a 4K release of this with all of those landscapes and everything. And it's insane. Mm. Uh, so there you have it. We are a pro The Descendants podcast. Which, I mean, going in, I didn't think that would be the case, because yeah. it's not really my kind of movie. Like, if I watched the trailer, I probably would have been like, mm, I don't feel like being sad today, so I'll watch something else. I'll watch a horror yeah. movie or a comedy or an action film. Genre stuff is more where I know that Harley and I gravitate towards. Mm. But I do appreciate, Lawson, that you've tasked us with watching movies that we don't usually go out and look for. Yeah. So, if you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find those at Exit Do the Candy Counterfeit, Jordan, myself, and Lil Brightside. You can also reach us through our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episode-specific feedback and movie recommendations. What do you think about The Descendants? And what is your favorite George Clooney role? Uh, comment that on our Twitter and also on our uh, podcast pages. Uh, you can like, rate, comment, share and subscribe on the podcast app of choice. Just keep in mind with those comments on certain podcast apps, it comments on the show on the whole and on others. It is for specific episodes. Mileage simply varies depending on which service. If you are commenting on one of the services, say Apple podcasts that do it on the whole cite the episode you're referring to. It just helps us understand what you're saying a lot better uh, because we've done quite a lot of these and sometimes things drop out of our memories uh, that's what happens when you do this every week, no fail for nearly over three years. Uh, but please do like, rate, comment, share, and subscribe. I have told you that in the Robot Run future, there have been attempts to arrest the climate disaster that is starting in your current day and age, but has grown worse by the time the robots have taken over. They've done their best to arrest the decline of the Earth, uh, but that's all it's been, an arresting, not a reversal. Uh, so certain at-risk landscapes, the, a lot of the coasts of America and Hawaii and other island nations have had to be protected in a much more thorough sense. Have you seen Under the Dome? It's very akin to that. Uh, also, Venice, that's just gone now. They didn't get to that one in time. Yeah, they couldn't, they couldn't make that one work. So, Lawson, what have you got for us next week? 
Uh, well, next week we will be doing another movie that I strongly doubt that you would have ended up with on your own. Um, it's a movie that is, I suppose, similar in that, that it's a dramedy. It's based on a play. It is directed by Roman Polanski, so there's that. Um, it is the 2011 film Carnage, starring uh, John C. Riley, Christoph Waltz, Jodie Foster, and Kate Winslet. Uh, if you would like to follow along at home, you can find it available for purchase or rental on the Apple, Amazon, and YouTube stores. So, join us next week for when we discuss Carnage. Till then, I have been Harley Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and will continue to be Jean Lewis. Sure